0: So we're starting a student ministry here at Harvest. Uh, having a 15 and a 12-year-old, uh, this is exciting for me, excited for them. Um, having been a youth pastor for 13 years, this is exciting for me for that reason as well. Having a love for teenagers, having a, a heart for the family. But the statistics show that somewhere around 80% of Teenagers, they graduate from high school and have been involved in the church to some degree or another, that somewhere around 80 percent walk away um, from their faith, have nothing to do with Christ other than maybe to say, "I'm a Christian." It tells me that either they were not engaged with the gospel or that they were not given the opportunity to really examine their hearts to see if the Holy Spirit was indwelling them and that they had a living, growing relationship with the Lord. But I would imagine that the majority of these teenagers were very content with their involvement. I would imagine the majority of their parents were very content with their involvement. But I want to direct our attention this morning to, as a church, to the amazing opportunities that we can easily miss. These are the opportunities for teenagers that come with the teenage years. These are opportunities for parents of teenagers that come with being parents of teenagers. These are opportunities for us as a church body that come with having teenagers in our midst. I think there's literally a thousand things that I could say this morning. Um, I, did, I could I could make this a combination of many parenting classes or student uh, adult leader training sessions. Now this is a different type of sermon this morning. Normally here at Harvest we have practice expositional preaching, and that is where we take a passage of Scripture and we unpack it and we expose it. and and what it has meant for the original audience, and we put it back together for what it means for us today. This sermon to this morning is a topical sermon. I would not expect us as a church to grow spiritually on a steady diet of topical sermons. Uh, My hope is to create a vision for what our church can be for the young people that God has entrusted to us. My hope is to create a vision in the young people of our congregation as well. So I'm excited to announce our newest initiative for ministering to students. We're going to be assigning one to two adult leaders per student. We're going to be arranging to have these adult leaders live in the homes of the students so as to catch them at their best and at their worst. We'll be including other children into the mix. Uh, This this allows for the students to be required to think about how their behavior affects other people, especially those that need from them. Uh, We're going to give, this provides opportunities to mentor and how to deal with frustration and with um, stepping on each other's toes. Hopefully they'll be mentored in how to look for opportunities to serve others. Now, this is the part that's going to take some money. We're planning to genetically manipulate these adult leaders so that they're prone to understand the needs, the hurdles, the bents of of each particular student to whom they're assigned. Well, obviously, I'm glad to hear that you're snickering at this and not thinking, this sounds great. (laughs) But what really I'm describing to you is God's design for teenagers and that is to be ministered to by their parents to have one to two adult leaders that are pouring their lives into them that know their bent that know their needs that know their particular hurdles because they're, it comes from them it comes from their genes the family is designed to throw more than one person Into the same geographic area, needing the same things, and needing to negotiate how do I love this person when they irritate me? So, the first of them are amazing opportunities that we can easily miss, is to we can miss the opportunity to equip God's primary youth pastor, and that being the parent. We we deal with a parent misconception. We're going to talk about a lot of misconceptions this morning, but we deal with a parent misconception that it comes from our culture, and that is, I brought them this far, and now it's time to hand my teenager off to the church or to the school. Harvest has not followed this uh, temptation in the past, and we don't plan to follow it in the future. But this has certainly been the mistake of a lot of us who send our young people maybe to a youth group or or to school or to to um, or not necessarily, well, it's sending them to something with the expectation of, I've done my job, now let's see how they play out. But the fact is, is that we as parents are given the job of pastoring our young people in our homes. Uh, we see this in Ephesians 6.4, where fathers are told not to provoke their children to anger with their discipline, but rather to use their discipline to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We see in Proverbs 22.6, this is a common proverb here. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there's a couple things to notice in this proverb. One, it's not just parents that are mentioned here. Although, I'm going to argue that parents are mentioned here. But that training, if you'll notice, we usually apply this to parents, but it's a broad instruction, I believe, to the body to train the child. But first of all, this is a proverb, not a promise. A proverb being a teaching about how God has designed life to work. But many times we as parents, we can uh, think, okay, I'm training my child, Lord. I'm making sure that, you know, we're reading Bible stories. We're going through these things. And now I've got you over a barrel. You've promised that they're not going to depart from it. They're not going to rebel. This is why a lot of us homeschool. So that they won't rebel, right? Like it's some sort of magic. And I say that as a homeschool parent. Um, there's a flavor to this proverb that only a parent can accomplish. And that is when it talks about train up a child in the way he should go, it's, it's describing in the way of his bent, in the way that he is designed for, that she is designed for. I have a friend who makes um, gun stocks in uh, Rapid City. He, makes, he hand makes gun stocks for collector um, rifles. Uh, maybe some of them were broken or or things like that. And he was showing me this gun stock <clears throat> of this very specific gun. And the wood for this stock comes from the crook of a tree where the two parts of the tree come together. And, he, and he's showing it to me and he said, this is beautiful. And he says, but I ruined it. And he's like, can you tell what the problem is here? And I'm kind of like, no, I, I can't tell at all. And he said, you notice how the feathering in this wood as the gun stock goes down, the feathering curves up. This particular gun stock, it's not that kind of a gun unless it has this wood with this particular feathering and the feathering is traveling down the, the bend of the gun stock. He said, I have to throw this one away. And that's the idea there of seeing the bent in the wood and the way that the wood wants to go. Many of you who work with wood understand this. That that's the description here of training up a child according to their bent. And that is something that can only happen by the parent. The only, only the parent is the one who understands the bent of a child, understands the challenges that, that a teenager is going to face. The, the challenges that you faced and you face today are the same ones that are going to be faced by your teenager. But notice also that that proverb is not limited. It doesn't say, parents, you alone... Train up a child. Uh, Moving into Deuteronomy 6 here. Um, This is going to sound familiar from the last two weeks of sermons. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. These here represent the most significant teachings of scripture to this point in biblical revelation. And parents are given the primary job of pastoring their young people as the picture is in this passage of scripture. Notice it's more than just teaching. Notice it's more than just saying, you know, you need to love God with all your heart. There's values communicated here. There's importance communicated here. Why is that? Because it's on the parents' lips at all times. We'll teach them diligently when... You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. It's also a matter of modeling the truth, not just teaching the truth. Modeling its importance because it comes up. It comes up at the most random times because it affects the most random things. It affects everything. Truth that is valued is truth that moves from beliefs to convictions. Truths will not move from beliefs to convictions if young people, if it's not shown to be valuable truth. That's a reason why from this point we've said we want our young people here. We want our young people here during the sermon time. This is valuable. This is important. If it's not communicated as being important, it's not held as important, Truth that isn't held as important does not transition from being a belief to a conviction. We can have a church misconception as well, that it's all up to the parents and the church just needs to stay out of the mix. I want to share with you from Titus 2, 1 through 7a here. And you might read this passage and hear it talk about young women with children or young women with husbands and think, well, that's talking about, you know, adults, well, I can't get into all of it this morning, but I want to share with you, and i 'll touch on this a little bit. I consider especially teenagers from mid teens on to be young adults at this time when this passage was written, The mother of a young child would have been a teenager uh, that's what they're equipped for and and not to say that we don't need to do some training in that direction and such and and, um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more but Titus 2 writes but as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine that's the message to Titus the pastor older men are to be sober minded dignified self controlled sound in faith in love and in steadfastness older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. Again, notice the call to being doing more than just teaching. I would argue that this is a call to be making disciples, where where Christ is talking about, where Christ has given the responsibility to the church of going and making disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them, which means a separation from their previous life and a joining up to the cause of Christ. Um that this is a process of discipleship that's being described here as being a part of the whole church body. Older men and women, of course, none of us want to think we fit into that. But honestly, I would have fit into this age. Um, But I just want to introduce you here to the three-layer approach to discipleship that I believe is very helpful. This three-layer approach of discipleship, which is made up of teaching modeling, and coaching. You could probably call coaching mentoring, but it gets a little confusing. But, so this three-layered approach to discipleship is made up of teaching, modeling, and coaching. Teaching here, you could describe as communicating in order to help a person know and understand truth. Communicating in order to help a person know and understand truth. We have uh, in children's church and through the summer our kids have been taught truth in a way so that it's help, hopeful that they both know it and understand it that they see how it applies now that truth needs modeling sorry that truth needs modeling uh, meaning we want to make sure that we have teachers that are present there that our kids can see their lives and see that truth that's being taught being played out in their life as well. Modeling is allowing a person to see lived out what has been taught. Allowing a person to see lived out what has been taught. Modeling the truth shows the importance of the truth that's being taught. The saying is is true. Values are caught more than taught. And modeling The truth is what helps establish values, valuing the truth, seeing that it's important. This is a two-way street, modeling the truth. What is taught at truth, let me say, when what is taught at church is not modeled at home, what is modeled is going to win out. When what is taught at church is not modeled at home, what is modeled at home is what is going to win out. young people the bottom line is this in terms of beliefs and convictions and the importance of there being values there when it comes down to it you might believe that it's wrong to cheat you might believe that you shouldn't cheat but when it comes down to the question of am I going to cheat that decision is going to be based on Do I value doing what is right in this area more than doing what is wrong? You might believe it's wrong to cheat, but what you do in that moment is going to show whether you value that truth. What you do in that moment is going to show whether that is more than just a belief, but it's a conviction. I'm getting ahead of myself into James 2 here, but... So we've said this is a two-way street. Also, what is taught at home in terms of biblical values, these need to be modeled outside of the home by those who are important to our young people. This is important with both adults and the peers that our teenagers spend time with. Modeling the truth helps to move the truth from a belief to a conviction. So getting into coaching here. Coaching or mentoring, you could say, is coming alongside in order to help apply what a person knows and understands. Have you ever tried to coach someone in a sport that they don't want to play? It doesn't work very well. See, when you know a teenager is ready to move from the truth being modeled to them to to being coached in that, is that coaching involves working with a young person or a fellow adult who desires to grow The desires to apply it. The desires to submit themselves under that. To see that become more real in their life of what they know and understand of the truth. Coaching could involve accountability. It can involve getting someone involved in ministry and helping them evaluate that experience. It can involve helping them to learn their spiritual gifts. And how God has uniquely designed them to be used in the world, to be used in his body. So as we move through these amazing opportunities of the teenage years, I hope that we can understand these opportunities that we all have here as parents, as teenagers, as harvesters, around um, our families here. As the primary youth pastors, the parents have the job of managing this discipleship process. These three layers of discipleship are not just one person's work. All right? You saw this in, in biblical times. You saw this with Jesus and his disciples. But my argument is that was Jesus. To provide both teaching and modeling and, and the, that coaching. But that's because that, that's what was involved with follow me. Be a part of my everyday life. See it happen. I'm going to put you into ministry so that you now get to do it. And then we're going to evaluate it. That process, that three-layer process. But I want you to see though that in this three-layer process that the parents as the primary youth pastors are to be kind of in charge of that, that that these are not necessarily filled by one particular person on any given day. Uh, Different issues of life um, say uh, the need to spend personal time in God's word. Uh, Different issues in life May, different areas are going to be covered by different people. It might be one Sunday I'm preaching on the importance of spending personal time in God's word, and it might be a leader involved with the student ministry is sharing something from their personal time in God's word, and they're modeling that, or maybe a peer in, in a discussion group, after a youth group, is, is sharing something what they've learned, and, that, and that's being modeled. And then at home, it may be that the parent is, is uh, asking their teenager, so are you spending time in God's Word? What is that like for you? Does, you know, can I help you at all? Can I re- maybe I should be reminding you too, or maybe we should be sharing with each other what we're learning. So you can see there in the process of it being taught in one place, modeled in another, and, and um, coached in another place. Or the teaching might come from the parent, and it might be modeled from the pulpit and it might be coached from a youth leader. These things alternate, but really this three-layer process is what is needed for teenagers or I believe for any of us to deepen our walk with the Lord in our discipleship process. Uh, so the fact as I mentioned, the church in America, in America has been failing at discipling teenagers. Um, I'm going to share some something with you that comes from uh, a book, "Soul Searching," by Christian Smith. And the subtitle of this is "The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers." Christian Smith is a professor at Notre Dame. Uh, he received a 1.5 million dollar grant to study the religious lives of the American re, religious and spiritual lives of the American teenager, and his findings are actually very. Um, frustrating for me as a youth pastor and as and as a representative a preacher of God's word, and that is that the pro, the predominant religious view that he found among American teenagers, and he found this especially in evangelical and Catholic youth, is not biblical Christianity. It's something called moralistic, therapeutic deism. This was his finding of the predominant religious view of the religious and spiritual lives of the American teenager. I'm sorry, this font didn't translate over, so it's a little small. But I'll read these for you. These are the tenets of moralistic, therapeutic deism. One, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now this would be funny if it weren't that a researcher developed these tenets of this moralistic therapeutic deism as being what represents the predominant religious view of evangelical and Catholic teenagers in the United States. This belief gets someone knocking on the door of heaven and finding that their God does not live there plain and simple and this is concerning this is why we need to be discipling teenagers we at Harvest want to make a concerted effort to be beating the statistics three to five years from now it requires teaching the truth, modeling the truth and coaching young people in following the truth let me share a picture for you of, of the teenage years Two boats heading toward uh, the two docks. Two docks are available there. You have the right dock and you have the wrong dock. Okay, we're just generalizing this. So our, our larger boat and our smaller boat are moving through the water here, and the smaller boat, as you can tell, is tethered to the larger boat. And as they're moving through uh, to these, the options of these docks, at some point in time, that tether is separated. It breaks. It's intended to break. At that point in time, the larger boat continues to move forward with its um, heading toward the right dock, if you will. At this point, I don't know. Yeah, you can see that. What has appeared here is a rudder. And I'm sorry that this isn't uh, clearer. But as you can notice, as the rudder is turned to guide the boat toward the wrong dock the boat's going to go toward the wrong dock. As the rudder is turned to guide the boat towards the right dock, the boat is going to move toward the right dock. Pretty simple, right? Let me pose that the time of the boat being tethered to the larger boat are the years leading up to the teenage years. They're they're the years when, with biblical teaching... With biblical instruction, with with challenging um, a child with the truth, the child is going to show mental agreement with a parent's faith. In the teenage years, it's an important time that that tethering to that parent's faith is now separated, and it's time to see what lies below the surface. The rudder of the boat is like the heart of the teenager. The decisions of the teenage years are revealing the rudder or the heart that is below the surface. So we miss an amazing opportunity of the teenage years if we do not focus attention on the heart. The Bible describes the person's heart as a source of their desires. We're told in Proverbs 4 23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. In Matthew 15, 18 through 19, we're told, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, theft false witness, slander. Behavior has consequences, this passage is telling us, and also behavior comes from the heart. We can have misconceptions as adults. One of those is that, haven't we covered this before? Why do we have to learn this again? Anybody found themselves? Any teenagers hearing that at home? Haven't we covered this before? Why is it that we have to cover this again? Um, We can also have this misconception as parents. This is about my teenager. This is not about me. As a model of the truth or as a mentor in the truth. Teenage years are about my teenager, not about me. Teenagers can have a misconception as well. We can be thinking, if I find the answers of my childhood don't work on my desires now, I must just be a misfit or it must just not be true. These misconceptions can harm communication. They can give the enemy a real foothold fact is that the teenage years are when we see a teenager's beliefs plus the position of their heart, the incline of their heart, well let me say their beliefs plus their desires reveals the incline of their heart, the position of their heart. It gives us the opportunity to to touch back into their heart. The fact is, is that, let me put it this way. If you're a Sunday school teacher and you're saying, I taught Johnny all of this and look at the decisions he's making. It's because what you taught is now being combined with Johnny's heart. And, he needs, and, and there needs to be some involvement there. There needs to be some, some shaping. There needs to be some interaction over that. Teenagers need to be given the right to say, but I don't want to do that. What's wrong with me? Or is there something wrong with that? What's there in the pages? I don't want it. James 2, 4 through 9, we've looked at these over the last couple weeks, says, but what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And we're not going to go back into this. It's taken us two weeks to explain it. But the teenager that has grown up in the Christian home and has shown evidence of saving faith, but has walked away from that faith or shown no present evidence or desire to follow Christ, is really a good example of this passage of scripture. We're told in Second Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Young people, you need to be examining yourselves. You need to be looking at your hearts during the teenage years to see whether you have a saving faith. And you don't need to be made to feel like a mutant if you're not seeing it there. Okay, it's, a, it's time to own it. It's time to see what is my relationship with God. What this passage is telling us is that Jesus Christ is in us if we have a relationship with the Lord, and he's doing things. He's active. He, he wants to expand his kingdom within our lives. A- and we should see that. We, we should learn how to look for that. We want to help you to, to learn how to develop that or, or maybe to gain it. We need to be, we need to help teenagers to feel comfortable talking about the shape of their faith. As people, we need to stop, we need to step into, as parents, let me say, we need to step into our teenagers' choices, their success or their failures as an, we need to step into it as an opportunity to help them examine their hearts. Our hope as a church should be to disciple young people who are growing in a personal pursuit of their relationship with their Savior and Lord. So this moves us into the third amazing opportunity that we have, to, and that is to challenge teenagers as young adults. We must recognize that there is a transition being made during the early teenage years from a child to a young adult. Prior to the 1900s, teenagers were getting married, starting a career, having children. I can, uh, In talking about this, um, I've had parents share with me that that lived out on the prairie in South Dakota and one parent came to me and he said I have a journal from my grandfather and in that journal he describes the fact that there was a prairie fire that was going to be heading toward the town and all the adults were expected to go and and, uh, fight off the prairie fire and he said my grandmother was 13 years old and cared for her family responsibly for four days. And that was nothing beyond expectation. The fact is, is that it wasn't until the early 1900's that intellectuals started to separate teenagers from adults. With the invention and the availability in the 50's of the automobile, with the development of cell phones and the internet and things like that, what we have seen is Privileges skyrocket while responsibility and expectation of responsibility has decreased dramatically to the point that one writer... And, and that, that tension there leads to a lot of problems. Um, and we don't need to approach it the way that one writer described it, that, that the way that you deal with the teenage years is when a child turns 13, you put them in a barrel and cover it up and feed them through the hole. And then he said, when they turn 15, you plug the hole. (laughs) I believe that so much of the tension between teenagers and adults have come from these low expectations, high capability, and that capability is being used in in ways that are, in in a lot of ways, unproductive to their development. So anyways, I'm getting academic here, but let me share with you... um, just lastly, from Proverbs 4 10 through 15, it says, Hear, my son, and accept my words, that your years of life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of righteousness, of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. This proverb represents the teenage years as being a time when a person has skin in the game. They've been instructed in the way of wisdom, they're expected to walk in a way of wisdom. The way of wisdom is living out. Biblical truth, not just head knowledge, but living it out. Notice it's talking when you walk or when you run. It's talking about the pace of his life. It's describing. She is your life. It's up to him, the hearer, to avoid the path of the wicked and the way of the evil. He is told, do not make the choice to go to them. Turn away. It's the choice is up to him. The teenage years are when a person has skin in the game finally. We can have a misconception, though, that the teenage years are just a natural time of rebellion. If they can we think if they can get through them without flunking out, getting addicted to drugs, or having a baby, we should be happy with that. And this is sad, it's short-sighted, and it misunderstands the opportunity of the teenage years. Notice how Proverbs 4 continues. It makes the teenager the responsible for their heart. It says my son be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight, keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I want you to notice two things here. The teenage years are not set on a track like a roller coaster. Not, they're not destined to be right out on the track that's laid out for them. The teenage years are a time for attentiveness to wisdom, for being, ma- for being mentored and learning through guided experience. The proverb that teaches us to guard our hearts is directed to the young person, the teenager. Young people are not just destined to bob in the murky, the murk of a worldly culture. They're called to guard, to walk wisely and guard their heart. As with all of us, young people are responsible for the desires that they allow to grow in their hearts. I'm just going to close here with a quote from an article that I've printed off about 10 or 11 copies. And um, I have them sitting over here next to the window going into the kitchen. And I want to encourage you to pick up one of those, especially if you're a parent. This quote comes from an article called The Myth of Adolescence. It can also be found online, I think. The author is listed in your notes. It says, As we consider scripture, it's clear that the Bible does not recognize adolescence. Certainly no Greek or Hebrew term represents such a stage. And perhaps we need only consider the following brief list of, significant, of, of the significance of teens, not only as adults, but also as the heroes of our faith. Throughout the Bible, we see God calling and putting teenagers at the cutting edge of his work and trust. Consider Daniel and his friends, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joseph, Hezekiah, Ruth, Mary and Joseph, David, Josiah and Mark, all teenagers. If God Himself puts such great stock in teens, why don't we? Because we don't really believe that teens can be significant for Christ, he says. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I'm again this morning's kind of giving like giving you lots of snapshots into my head, into the and into the direction of ministering to teenagers, that we plan to move. Here at Harvest, and I want to invite Rod uh, to come up. Rod Curran is um, being uh, uh, taking the place of leading the the student ministry team that is chartered with the responsibility of ministering to teenagers. Um, and I want uh, him to share a little bit from his heart regarding uh, Wednesday evenings uh, for this school year. Thanks, Rod.